0: The safest change is the smallest one. Shipping is our company's heartbeat. We absolutely believe speed of deployment, speed of development is a competitive advantage. This was actually one of those things where you go, how much do you believe in it? How much are you willing to fight for it? How much work are you willing to invest in it? And if your competitors are willing to deploy five days a week or six days a week or seven days a week, and you're actually only able to do it four days a week, You're going to lose.
1: Hi, I'm Liz Fong-Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, a monthly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OlliCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more
2: information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at ollicast.com. That's O1Y 11 ycast Polycast. Does Intercom ship code on Fridays?
0: We ship code every day of the week. We actually ship code at the weekend if we need it. And for me, the question about what day of the week you actually ship code on, the answer to that is more of like, how do you actually think about shipping code? And the question is, do you actually feel confident in your software development and software deployment processes? And for me, I think about, Our CI CD is generally about five minutes long. We can actually fully roll out or roll back any change in about 10 minutes time. We ship almost all of our changes under feature flags and that means we can actually turn features on or code on and off at the flip of a button.
2: This is even more impressive when you realize that you guys run Ruby.
0: Yeah, so We run Ruby on Rails on the front end, Ember on the back end. Shipping is our company's heartbeat. We absolutely believe speed of deployment, speed of development is a competitive advantage. I
2: love that phrase.
0: So basically everything we do is oriented towards shipping code as frequently and as fast as possible. Now caveated with that, Occasionally something actually isn't gonna be able to be fully de-risked or roll back, like so a massive MongoDB major version upgrade or something like that. And absolutely we're not gonna do, right, we're not not going to to do that on like DB a on, on like a on a Friday evening. Shipping is your
2: company's heartbeat. I love that. I think that really gets to the core of this argument that Liz and I have been having with the world about software. But this feels like a good time for you to introduce yourself.
0: My name is Rich Archibald, I am a Senior Director of Engineering at Intercom. I actually run Intercom's backend and foundations engineering group. I've been with them for about five years now, I'm based in our Dublin office. For anybody who doesn't know Intercom, I'd say go to the Honeycomb website and check out the customer chat widget in the bottom right hand corner, that's us. Our mission is to make business personal, and we actually provide customer communication software that helps every part of a business talk to its yeah, customers.
2: We use it extensively, and you guys were pretty much our first real serious customers, too. You remain to this day the only customers that have ever been really sold by the term high cardinality dimensions. <laughs> like Liz is staring at me because... One of the first things she said to me is, this is not going to work.
0: (laughs) Before actually working at uh, Intercom, I used to work at Facebook and also worked at Amazon. And so I've seen kind of the inside of two massive megacorps. And then I've also seen all of the tooling on the outside of the world. And really, scuba at Facebook was kind of this kind of game changer. Totally a game changer. It was something that Amazon had never seen or had any kind of example of. And so I, I kind of actually knew this was gold working at Intercom, because we had actually kind of come across the need for all of this high cardinality metrics. We called it per app metrics or per customer metrics is kind of really what we were looking for. We ended up actually running two different graphite infrastructures, which was taking just hours and hours, like we engineers done the same and engineers working.
2: Yeah. You know, just like running, trying to pre-generate all of the dashboards for every single individual users, because that's what you need.
0: Yeah. We also tried running all this stuff through Datadog and we actually crippled our Data dog instance because we just had so many metrics in there, everything actually slowed down.
2: It turns so out you an- care about everything. Yeah. Combined <laughs> with everything else.
1: But this so. isn't a honeycomb. Ads, yes. So let's talk <laughs> about how did you get to that state of having shipping code being your lifeblood? Did it start from the very beginning, or was it something that came to intercom later in its, no, in its it life? I,
0: I think this is actually one of the kind of interesting bits about the intercom story is that in the first six months of Intercom's creation as a company, our CTO and VP of engineering decided we actually needed to have a world class CI CD system and built their own CI CD system at the time, which is an internal application called Muster. And this is the thing which allowed fully automated push on green CI CD. Now, and, this
2: is so interesting to me. Now, I love talking about Intercom's engineering culture. It's one of the companies I think that at Honeycomb we've always seen as kind of like a Older sibling, like farther along, but like believing so many of the same tenets. And I first realized this when I heard you talking about your approach to software, which is what run less software.
0: Run less software. I love yeah. that. So run less software for us is it's probably my favorite uh, intercom engineering value. And it came about I think shortly after I joined. We had our first infrastructure offsite and. We were just kind of talking about MySQL and whether or not we actually needed to hire a dedicated MySQL engineer or whether or not we needed to hire a dedicated graphite engineer, even. And And this
1: was in the days when RDS was not necessarily the uh, oldest thing in the block.
0: Yeah, this was maybe three years before Aurora. Okay. And we were thinking we're going to have to spend dedicated engineering headcount on these yeah. like tiny things that yeah. that you
2: don't want to customers to care about. don't care about. Customers, customers don't, care, don't about. care about. And
0: our CTO was just kind of railing against these. and he said I want to run less software, not more software. And so this actually was the beginning of this concept. And for us run less software is kind of one of our competitive advantages how we actually kind of lean into high quality, high speed, low cost software engineering. We focus on writing software for things that our customers care about. We actually build them out of a small set of core technology components. And these are like Ruby on Rails, Go, Ember, AWS, Aurora, MySQL. And by focusing on these things, we can actually train our engineers in them and make them absolute experts in them.
1: Right. So you have a standard set of technologies and kind of a standard set of frameworks. That was part of what I really liked about when I used to work at Google was that I could parachute into yeah. any project at yeah. Google and I could understand where is the monitoring located, where is the telemetry, how yeah. do I restart this, right? Like all standardized. Yeah.
0: It actually creates fungibility amongst your engineers. Engineers are able to move between system to system. It makes operations this, easy because you, you can centralize very
2: it. Re- very strong focus on everyone builds things that impact users. You know, like that's, that's the thing that I hadn't really thought as an infrastructure engineer. It's like, you know, yes, you have need for infrastructure, but you keep it as little as possible because you want all your engineers to be thinking about, you know, being in the customer. So I think it's very interesting and very fortuitous and it makes sense that you, with that firm focus on the customer, that you would find us that early mm-hmm. on.
1: The last thing anyone wants to do is have to build their own monitoring system and build their own observability system. Being
2: able to see the world from every single user's perspective, every single app's perspective is absolutely central.
1: Everybody
0: knows that once you've got a platform that has tens of thousands of customers on it, a system level SLA of... Ninety-nine point nine percent covers is like,
2: so many sins.
0: Yeah, that's like way too low a bar to be thinking about things. You need to be thinking about how how sometimes, your customers experience. Sometimes
2: it. some of your highest paying and most important customers will be barely a fraction of a percent.
0: Enterprise customers who would use a tiny little yes. feature once or twice, but, but yeah, it's actually it, yes. super important.
1: So tell us a little bit more about how you think about kind of your platforming decisions. How did you arrive at Ruby and Go and Ember?
0: It's a really interesting question and this is actually one of the ones where I think there is no right or wrong answer. I think the right answer is that you have standards and that you have made choices. I think it's actually way less important what those actual choices are. So, For us, our CTO was a Rails engineer and loved Rails. Some of our earliest software development hires were... Ember specialists. So, therefore, we had like Rails on the back end, Ember on the front end. But I could see some other companies saying, we're going to have Python on the back end. And it kind of doesn't matter as long as you pick something. It doesn't matter once you pick something.
2: Speaking of choice, though, uh, you also have a completely voluntary opt in on call rotation. This is something that I've been repeatedly told is completely impossible. So, tell me how you got there.
0: That's a fun story. I love on call. Me too.
2: call is
1: great. Me
0: three. (laughs) But I also respect that some people find it super stressful, and some people don't want to do it, and some people are in different stages of their life where they've got different things going on outside of work or whatever.
2: I always said that there was just excuses, excuses, and then I had an engineer on one of my teams at Facebook who was totally willing, but it was so anxiety-ridden that he wouldn't sleep all week. And he, at first it was like, I'll get used to it. He never did. And I started to feel like I was just torturing the poor fellow. Like, he, he couldn't function. So instead of being on call for the, you know, carrying a pager, he became the person who was on call for the CICD system, like, every other week. And everybody won.
1: Yeah, having production excellence means involving everyone in some capacity, not necessarily putting them on call in the evenings and weekends. And making
2: the on-call system something that's not, like, you don't suffer, right? Making it palatable to have and a life.
0: I actually found by making the on-call system voluntary, and voluntary but paid and recognized and rewarded and everything like that for the specialist skill it is, by making it voluntary, so during... Daytime hours, all of the teams are on call for their own systems. And it's only at nighttime. Yeah, the feedback loop is incredibly powerful. Nobody ever wants their team to be the one which is actually waking somebody else up. True. One of your peers doing it voluntarily. And so that kind of peer pressure feedback loop makes sure things actually get fixed way quicker than if it was the team carrying and their actually, own evening it on call It actually call helps out.
2: to accrue some status to the engineers who choose into it too, right? Because it's, a, it's not a low status thing where, well, you're the lowest man on the totem pole, we're going to make you do this, right? Instead it kind of flips the script. You're the superhero you who's able to, to take
0: on this You th- have to this earn thing. this role, yeah. right? You
2: have to be this tall to ride this ride, and once you're able to and you get paid for it, yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: I think it's certainly the prestige though. Like, I'm on the strike team. We call it the strike team. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a superhero thing. We actually have a bunch of swag around yeah. it. It's also super well supported by the leadership team. Yeah. So everybody who is a director or above is on strike L two, level two on-call. And basically we tell the on-call engineer: listen, if you get paged, follow the run book. If you can't actually follow the run book or feel unsure nervous, anxious, in any way, shape, or form, page L2. And level two's job is then to come in and be the incident commander, take control, help you out, make it easy. pull other
2: people in. Absolutely, ring
0: other people, ring the engineering manager, thank the person for escalating. It's it's real, hey, thanks for calling me and I'm here to help. Really appreciate it, great job, thanks, how can I help?
1: Yeah, but you were talking earlier about the idea of wanting your service to be reliable enough so that it doesn't page the volunteers in the middle of the night. How did you get that to work with pushing changes on Friday?
0: When you have a five to ten minute feedback loop on pushing a change and when you're actually able to push that change out under a feature flag and when you're pushing it out in a monolith, which is like safe and well-instrumented, and when you're actually pushing it out following a process which has... Good principal engineer review over it. The just likelihood of it breaking or breaking one hour later is just so low. If it's going to break, it's going to break in those first five minutes. You're still around, and you just right, actually so you roll it back. You have to
1: be intentional about making your system, it sounds, not leave time bombs for the on-call engineer. And you have to have done it enough that you're not afraid of it.
2: You don't fear, because you know what to do if something goes wrong. You know how to catch it, you know how to fix it, you know
1: it won't take that long. And you know it won't ruin mm-hmm. someone's weekend, even if they do yeah. get a page, they can turn yeah. the feature flag off. We
0: deploy about a thousand times a week. So That's awesome. If you are determined to deploy code about a thousand times a week and have each one take about 10 minutes. It's just hard to be afraid of it. You 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 just go, we do this so often,
1: it's just how we work. One of the conversations I was having a while back was about the idea of if you push code automatically every single day, it becomes weird to turn the system off. Yes.
0: Our actual biggest problems are when we actually haven't deployed code for an hour. Because then you have like five or six changes back up at the one time. All the
2: worst outages of my career have happened after like freezes for holidays. Like all of them, because you no longer know what it is you're shipping. Yeah. And you've got all these changes kind of in there together, jumbled up, and nobody can remember what they were doing. It's hard to find the problem when something goes wrong.
0: The safest change is the smallest one. Yes.
2: Right? So, what they said in Accelerate is our intuition tells us that if we just slow down and we're more careful, then the errors will fall. But in fact, it's the opposite. Like they work in tandem. Your velocity increases and your errors decrease.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting thing in the 2018 State of DevOps report by Accelerate in which they pointed out the misguided performers that were slowing down wow. and getting the worst of both worlds. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, I think even people understanding what fast is and yeah. what frequent is, 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 is yeah. interesting. I what, remember is the, what
2: is the time interval between when your engineers commit the code and when it's being used by users?
0: About 10 minutes, that's five to 10 brilliant. minutes.
2: And that's what they called out in that book as being the best statistic that tells how good a team is, how efficient they are, how, how much of a high performer they are. And yet almost no teams I know are tracking that.
0: I remember being at Facebook And when they would ship code like twice a day, and it would take several hours, Mm -hmm. and there would be 50 or 60 people showing up on IRC to like check in their change and support it. And I remember thinking, this is crazy. This is not fast.
2: Facebook is now
1: fully automated.
2: Finally, that's
0: great. Yeah,
1: it's kind of a question of do you do this early on, or do competitive pressures make you eventually have to do it and at a huge cost?
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting as well as like how much do you actually care about it because I, I think it's easy to have it at the start when you're tiny, but then as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, are you willing to fight for it? Are you willing to fight to keep it? Are you willing to create whole teams in order to lean into this?
2: Because it's not costless you no. have to choose to work on that instead of something else.
0: We have more CI servers than we have any other server type. But mm-hmm. we've done that because we've gone to EC2 spot instances, right? Sure. So like we used to use about three different third-party CI services mm-hmm. and at the scale we're at now in order to have the speed that we want and the quality that we want, we've had to go active active to have dual CI providers racing against each other, and one of them is us. We've had to become our own CI provider. So this is kind of one of those things where I would love to outsource this undifferentiated heavy lifting, but at the scale and speed at which we want to do it, it is no longer undifferentiated heavy lifting. It's actually yeah. a competitive What's advantage.
2: What's interesting to me is that you said like your CTO built that in the very beginning, back when you would not have thought that it would be a differentiator.
0: Yeah, but I think this is why we've kept with it For so long, and because it is one of the core beliefs of the company that that speed of development is a competitive advantage.
2: I think anyone would have said that that was a big mistake to focus on writing a CI
1: tool that early in your. life. I think
0: our CEO might have said it at the time, (laughs) but here we are. he had
1: the the last laugh, I suppose. So So for companies that are not Intercom, how would you advise that they get started down this path? You know, how do you move from deploying once per day to deploying every single change within ten minutes?
0: I think one of the other aspects of culture that we have is zero touch operations and moving to like operations codified in software broader than in a wiki. Mm -hmm. So I think like just looking to Understand your process and just slowly but surely automating every step. And then, mm.
1: and step zero in that process is even writing it down, right? Like a lot of stuff lives in people's shell scripts in their heads, and even getting it down into a wiki. Yeah. When I used to work at Google, we had the idea of the checklist Sisyphus. Like it literally would be, you write a list of bullet points, and the, yeah. and the automation reminds you: did you do X? Did you do Y? Did you do Z? And you check it off by hand. But eventually, you can automate each individual piece. Yeah. And
2: then once you've automated, then you start measuring to see where you can improve. I think you guys instrumented your whole build pipeline with Honeycomb and that let you just kind of keep knocking off slow tests.
0: Totally. This was actually one of those things where you go, how much do you believe in it? How much are you willing to fight for it? How much work are you willing to invest in it? And this is where we had, hey, we have... Tens of thousands of tests, and they are now arbitrarily bucketed together, and are now taking twenty minutes to run. Right? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with our test taking twenty minutes to run? Hey, we're actually a big company now. Maybe this is okay. Maybe this is the bar just of right. a company our size. I
2: remember that. And
0: you go, I don't think so. I don't think we're happy to live with that. And so we set about using Honeycomb to instrument every single test and to see the P fifty, P ninety, P seventy five.
1: Yeah, because people talk about uh, flaky tests, but people don't necessarily talk about long-running or variable timing tests, so this sounds like
0: a new thing. Is the test flaky all of the time, or is it flaky some of the time? Is the test flaky when it's actually in with this bucket versus in with this bucket? Do we actually have to run every single test individually and measure its time and measure its kind of standard deviation and whatnot? So there was actually a huge amount of instrumentation analysis, individualization test analysis in order to try and figure out how can we bin pack these tests more effectively and how can we find out which are the ones which have flaky dependencies or which are the ones which are unneeded or simply just badly written or bloated. And we were eventually able to get that time down from 20 minutes down to consistently sub-five minutes and keep it there. And that's actually kind of that Broken window syndrome. You know, yeah. once you actually get it back down that low, you know, okay, no matter how big it gets, we can I, keep it at I this like size. I this, like
2: this this approach. You can contrast it with a lot of the objections that we were getting about. You know, oh, you can't deploy on Fridays, where people just accept that this is the way the world is, and that lack of agency and that lack of like, I mean, if you tell me that you can't deploy on Fridays, I absolutely accept that today. But what about a month from now? Do you want that to still be true? Wouldn't mm-hmm. it be better if you know you? could trust your deploys if it wasn't a big deal, if you weren't scared of it. And I don't understand why so many people are just Seem to be happy with the, the status yeah, and quo. And it's kind
1: of even the basics of, you know, can you restart a server with a no op change on Friday? Like, you know, let's start yeah. there. Or can you deploy a white space I mean, change or something? If you really you just-
2: think that you're not going to find various problems for 48 hours, maybe we start there. Maybe are you looking at your deploy after it goes out? You know, are you instrumenting it? Like, there are only a few categories of problems that will take, you know, a day or two to show up. And that's not the majority of what most people encounter.
0: I think sometimes emotionally something can feel hard. You go, this feels hard. I don't think we can do this. We haven't been able to do it so far. And then you go, let me actually break it down into smaller chunks. Let me actually measure each bit. And this was actually the test time situation. Hey, we're at 20 minutes. I don't know. It feels like it's going to be really hard. Are we going to be able to do this? Let's actually just start to measure each one. And then measure it a different way. And just actually start to layer on more and more the insight. And then you go, okay. I think if we do this bit and this bit and this bit and this bit individually, the problems aren't that big. It sounds really
1: interesting, right? Like we've talked a lot about observability-driven development, and it seems like observability-driven development is the opposite of superstition-driven development, right? Like of thinking, oh, this is going to be so hard, or oh, the payoff's not going to be worth it. Well, you can quantify it.
0: Yeah, I think that's like one of the one of the other things we talk about a lot, which is this. Design thinking methodology where you really understand something from first principles before deciding how to solve it or how to fix it. And there's a lot of kind of like instrumentation, understanding, measurement, testing of hypotheses, and whatnot that actually goes into helping you break something down into its kind of Primary constituents. And generally, once you actually break something down into its smallest constituents, you go, I can solve this using standard technologies. This isn't some crazy, horrific problem. This is actually a database scaling problem. Or this right, is like, a- if you
1: look at it all as one blob, it seems overwhelming. It's but terrifying. if it's decomposed, then yeah. you can actually assign people to work on it. You can get pieces of it done. And you, you can, can see improvements as you go along rather yes. than saying it's all or nothing. And once yeah. you start to get used to
2: the idea that you can actually fix things, then you hopefully gain some confidence.
0: Yeah, and the funny thing is, like, engineers love this stuff. Yeah. Like, like, engineers love it That's
1: why it's so baffling to hear this from engineers. It's like, do you like the way you live? <laughs> People get burned once, and then they don't want to touch True. the fire again. Or right? a
2: good point that someone brought up was that sometimes, you know, they don't have control over a lot of things, and the only thing that they can control is this one dumb stick, which is, I refuse to deploy on Fridays, because otherwise they're going to be working all weekend. And the problem is that, you know, the things that lead to them working all weekend, not the Friday deploys, but that's the only thing that they have to like push back. And in that case, like I would say find another job mm-hmm. if you can, but I get that as long as they're aware that that's what they're doing and they're not trying to argue that this is the way things should be. What bothers me the most is when I can tell that people are... Holding up the no Friday deploys as an example of this is how it should be, and if you don't believe this, you don't care about people in their
1: weekends. Yeah, right. Like you know, the idea of we don't care about our engineers. Right. I care about your
2: engineers a lot. That's why I don't want them to have to suffer through this any day.
1: Yeah,
0: I think being afraid generally to deploy on a Friday is a smell of weird engineering practices in general. It isn't a thing in itself. It's just an indicator that that something else is going on. That there's
2: some stuff that needs to get fixed. And
0: if your competitors are willing to deploy five days a week or six days a week or seven days a week and you're actually only able to do it four days a week, you're going to lose.
2: I also feel like using rules should be a last resort. right? Culture can do and should do so much heavy lifting for you here because when you use culture and you use norms, Mm. what you're doing is you're
1: allowing engineers to learn and to develop their own good judgment. And right. that goes into autonomy, right? Autonomy exactly. is a way of keeping engineers yeah. happy.
0: And what what even just about using software? Like we're actually okay doing automated rollbacks as well as rollouts. Yeah. You know, heaven yeah, forbid. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah, let's talk about ownership just a little bit as we're winding down here. Okay. How does that manifest? How do your engineers own their work? When is their job done? How do you feel about life work balance? Clearly you work your engineers
0: 24-7. <laughs> ownership is a funny thing. I like to think about pride. And I like to think about like enabling people to have pride in their work. I think you can have certain kind of like low bar of standards which kind of set the base level of what people are going to do, but hopefully trying to like inspire people to like actually really, really be proud of their work. That's better than any kind of Absolutely. like stick of uh, ownership or when I look accountability. back on
2: my career, it is not the jobs where I coasted and everyone thought I was amazing. When I was doing an hour or two of work a day, those are not the ones that I look back and just go, oh, "That was amazing." I look back at the ones that, where I was pushed by circumstances, by users, by growth, by but I, when I was pushed and I grumbled sometimes, but I I grew by leaps and bounds.
0: And you were proud of it. I was back. proud of it. Yeah. I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago I think called Pride Over Process.
2: I read that. I yeah. really
0: loved it. And that was definitely for me of like I think so much of the companies we work in people are here to do the best work of their careers and like generally actually trying to tap into that. And I think like structurally process-wise you like to set up teams which Enable people to have end-to-end ownership as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Enable them to know really who their customers are. Get those
2: feedback loops. Yeah,
0: get that feedback loops. Get them as connected to their customers as and possible. And not
2: everybody is in that phase throughout their life, right? There are times when you might want to take a step back. And I think that self-knowledge is the important thing here, like self-knowledge and businesses kind of accurately and honestly representing what kind of teams they want to build,
1: and also what they reward, right? And like what if they someone is. Giving everything that yeah. they have, they should be rewarded for Absolutely. it rather than having someone profit off of that. Absolutely. This has been a real pleasure to have you.
0: Thanks so much. It's been super fun. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you're interested in being a guest on a future show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllyCast. That's 011Y cast.